Tonight's show is pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders every weeknight at 6. I'm Billy Palmer, and in the studio with us is our Wednesday night volunteer, Natalie Benoit. Hey, Natalie. Hey, Billy. And of course, as you know, every Wednesday, if you listen to this show, for a very long time now, Nick Burns, uh, our longest lasting radioactive host here at the station. I'll try and take that as a positive yes, thank you. I've been around since the beginning. It's a great opportunity to reach out to the community. Uh, It's a great opportunity for the community to reach out to radio. So let's just get a pitch, krcl.org. It's never too early to start Radiothon Week. So I've done my part there, Billy. But seriously, it is a listener's community radio. I'm thrilled to be a part of it um, and happy to be here on Wednesday. Love it. And of course, we're going to be talking about something that you love to talk about most on your show is the environment and how we're going to save it, right? Uh, We're working on saving it. Um, Everyone probably knows Earth Day is coming up. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when a bunch of hippies in Berkeley buried an internal combustion engine, which sort of went on to lead the beginnings of Earth Day back, you know, around the Summer of Love days. But for now, we have Earth Day. That's the day when, gosh, we're not going to throw out a coffee cup. Um, And it seems to me, though, that every day ought to be Earth Day. But on the show tonight, all kinds of good stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about hawks and we're going to talk about birds. Going to talk with Chance Thompson from Utah Recycling Alliance. Jen Lopez from Clever Octopus, which is just a fantastic idea of a place. And then, of course, we want to talk with... Uh, Amy Powell, Salt Lake Community College, Sustainable Fashion. They actually offer a class at the college on sustainable fashion. And I know Clever Octopus is also involved in reusing fabrics and not just throwing stuff out. But I know we've got to get through Natalie Benoit and our rallies and resources before we can get to hawks and baby birds and birds and climate collapse. Not to, not to end on a bummer note. No, no, not to end like on a bummer note, which you did. But Natalie Benoit, Art, Rallies and Resources, what you got? So I tried to pick some, you know, earth and environment themed events coming up for the rest of the show's theme here. So starting up on this Friday is the beginning of the uh, Tulip Festival, annual, annual Tulip Festival that they have there at Ashton Gardens at Thanksgiving Point. That runs April 9th through May 8th. And uh, if you've never been, they've got really a lot of tulips. So if you're into that, that is going on starting on Friday. Next week, the University of Utah is hosting its Earth Week series of events all week long from April 12th through the 17th. And there's there's tons of tons of events every day that you can attend there, whether it's biking to campus or talking about the university's proposal to divest from fossil fuel investments, uh, how they invest their endowments, things like that. Tons of events going on there. Then a little bit later down the line, next Thursday, April 15th, there's a Tree Utah event at the International Peace Gardens in your neighborhood, Billy. All right. Um, That's from 4 to 7 on that Thursday, April 15th with the Glendale Community Council. And yeah, a bunch of other events coming up. If we look towards Earth Day on April 22nd, that's a little bit farther out, and I'm sure that the guests on the show tonight could 
tell us much more about Earth-related events that are coming up than I can. Certainly, we'll get to that for sure tonight is more that we can do. I did want to mention one thing. Today is Start by Believing Day. And on Start by Believing Day, uh, folks, uh, we can take a pledge. Last week, we had a conversation with uh, a panel of folks uh, to talk about it. But as a reminder, here's what Start by Believing Day is. This is Allison Jones Lockwood from End Violence Against Women International. So Start by Believing is a campaign for every person. It's not just about educating our responding professionals on how to respond appropriately, because the first person that a survivor typically discloses to is a family member or a friend or a loved one or a coach or a teacher. And we need to make sure that that first person they disclose to is just as prepared for how to respond as law enforcement. We know that survivors usually tell two to three support people before they report to law enforcement. And if one of those support people is not supportive or does not believe them, the survivor will likely shut down and never make a formal report and might never reach out for support after that and bury that trauma and that burden for many, many years. So it's a community aspect, it's a criminal justice aspect, and you mentioned judges and lawyers, but I would also add jury pools to that. We need to ensure that everyone that comes into contact with sexual assault, sexual assault understands the dynamics and understands the trauma so that they better understand the full picture for the survivor. That's Allison Jones Lockwood, the Start by Believing coordinator for End Violence Against Women International. If you want to get a group of friends together, do it at work, do it at home. However, go to startbybelievingday.org for more information. That'll conclude our rallies and resources. And so, you know what? Before we go to a song, uh, Nick, I think it's... And before we get to our upcycling conversation, you saw you saw an, an essay in High Country News, and it caught your attention. So uh, we booked the essayist. Ellis Julen is here uh, with us. Nick Burns. So, Ellis, thank you for taking time to chat with us. I know that you spend a lot of time out in the field, but uh, I thought your essay was really very readable, and I know you were also nominated for the Bell Prize. So that, to me, is a pretty cool mix that you're um, a successful writer and a hardcore out-in-the-field scientist. Yeah, um, I've writing's always been a passion of mine. I've always felt there was something I needed to do to help wildlife and wildlife conservation. And as a high schooler, I decided the only way to do that was science. So I pursued science in my undergrad and now I'm in graduate school, um, getting my master's in ecology. And I've always loved being able to communicate science to people outside of the field of science. I think a lot of what happens in scientific communication and writing is very jargon filled and very far down a specific rabbit hole that only other people in your field can understand. So my goal with this piece was to kind of talk about not only the work that I do and, and what it really looks like. I had a lot of family give me feedback after this piece that was like, oh, now I understand what you do. I never understood what you did. <laughs> oh. um, so it was that. And then also a space for me to incorporate my emotional component of what I do. Um, I think that we are all 
feeling beings. And so we all have emotions associated with our work, but oftentimes in the field of science that's shied away from or viewed as a weakness. And so this piece was really a space where I could kind of grieve um, some of the the things that I go through when I'm in the field and, and the challenges of working with wildlife in, in a climate that is collapsing. Yeah, no, I, tr truly, this is high country news. It's called of Hawks and Hope. People can check it out online, do a Google search. But you are right. Scientific writing is often that sort of impersonal, passive voice. The contents of Beaker A were introduced to Beaker B, right? There's no agency. But your piece is very, it's very human and it's very you. And I was quite touched. So by all means, keep on writing. So, but to jump into specifically, because I could talk about writing all night, but to talk about specifically your work, you research uh, baby hawks and parasites. So you're out in the field looking in hawk nests, I presume, this time of year or soon. Yes. Yeah, this time of year, I'm mostly just doing a lot of driving around looking at <laughs> old hawk nests or areas where they've nested in the past to see if the pairs are returning and building nests again. I study ferruginous hawks. It's a, a word that most people aren't super familiar with and a bird that most people aren't super familiar with. So I always say they're bigger than a red-tailed hawk, smaller than an eagle. They're the largest soaring hawk we've got here in North America, and they breed all throughout the Intermountain West. And I'm looking at how nest structures, the type of nests, uh, the type of structures they're building their nests in. So specifically for my research, I'm looking a lot at nest platforms. There've been a lot of these artificial platforms put up kind of on like power lines with a plywood piece on top, similar to an osprey platform you might see along the Provo River or um, any large body of water. And they've been put up across the sagebrush steppe in the Intermountain West to help these birds dealing with human disturbances. So oil and natural gas extraction on the landscape, recreational um, shooting, and even things like urban sprawl that are happening and kind of infringing on their breeding habitat. So I'm looking at how using those nests and um, the reuse of those nests, so birds coming back to these same platforms year after year could be affecting the parasite loads on their nestlings, um, in, in and on their nestlings. So I'm looking at blood parasites as well as external ones. And if folks go and find your article, there's a super cute picture you've got of little tiny baby hawks uh, squawking at the camera lens. So yep. yeah, so best wishes. I mean, driving around and checking out hawks, I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, but your piece that you wrote for High Country News is far more. I mean, your piece is sort of, you are grieving and angry, but you sort of, you write about turning that into taking action, which I think is, is difficult for people, especially these days. It's so easy to just kind of go to sadness and grief and move to solitude and hang out on the couch and eat ice cream, but that's not what you're doing. Yeah, no, um, I, I think that you're absolutely right. There is a lot of despair and a lot of harsh reality that we're confronted with um, these days. And I know Personally, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I definitely have times where I know that I have to just turn it off because I'm just doom scrolling and I'm just looking at <laughs> one piece of bad news after the next. And I have to stop and ask myself, what am I doing with this information other than retweeting it and getting sadder? Um, yeah, so I had a my field season last summer. We had some um, really abnormal 
kind of windstorms come through. And I talk about this in my essay, but I basically had one of my nests where um, the birds were doing really well. The nestlings had made it to about 28 days, which we typically view as the benchmark for them being able to survive all the way to fledging and being able to fly off the nest and and go on survival in the beginning after right after they hatch or even as they're inside their eggs can be really limited. But if they make it to those 28 days, we kind of have a good feeling they're going to they're going to be okay. Um, so we had this big windstorm come through. And I was out um, in one of my field sites checking nests. I like to check them every you know week or so, sometimes more. Um, I get pretty attached to the nestlings that I study and the birds that I work with. And I noticed there was no activity on the platform. So I got out, kind of hiked up closer than I normally would just because I wasn't seeing anything or even an adult bird nearby. And there was one of the nestlings dead um, underneath the platform. And so I had this profound moment of just complete loss like I had lost like one of my good friends or one of my dogs who are kind of my my four-legged children um so I thought about that a lot after that happened and these crazy weather events are so indicative of what we're expecting to see as the climate changes and I think that's been felt um in a really profound way across the west this past year especially with wildfire drought. Um, you know, the governor in U- here in Utah just declared the state of emergency with the drought a few weeks ago. And so it was one of those moments where the reality of the climate crisis really hit home and it had taken one of my nestlings from me um, and from all of us, because these aren't my birds entirely. To, to quote your article, uh, grief is a form of love. My love for what I do defines who I am. This love hurts. I thought that was just very beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I, the grief is a form of love. I first kind of heard that concept from my personal hero, Terry Tempest Williams, um, in a book talk she was doing in the fall. And when she said that, I, I just started crying and I was like, that's it. That's totally what it is. I love what I do and I grieve what I do because it's so hard, um, to be faced with this reality. And so I think that for me, I can't just sit and wallow in my grief. I can't just hold my nestling and and cry and give up on the rest of my work. And so I think it's really important to think about using the strong, like the strength of the emotions that we feel connected with the climate crisis to spur us towards action. And I think that that can take a lot of different shapes and mean a lot of different things. Um, But I know for me, I try to use my, my sadness to motivate me and, and, and know that the grief that I'm feeling and the the heartache that comes with watching nestlings die or seeing that the drought's going to be affecting, um, you know, populations of sage grouse, even like up in my, my region where I work and um, knowing that I need to do something about it and I can't just wallow. They need someone speaking for them. People need to know what a ferruginous hawk is and why it's important and why it matters. And maybe I'm the person to be able to communicate that. And that's what I can do. Well, one one bird at a time, right? Um, it's very it's very intriguing to me, and I think it's very powerful in your piece. Like you say, you touch on the grief and the hope and the activism, but I think it's very insightful. I guess is the word I'm looking for that you bring up Terry Tempest Williams and you move away from climate change, um, which is kind of becoming a little bit more accepted in conservative Intermountain West here. 
But you cut right to the chase with climate collapse. Uh, it's one thing to think, oh, gosh, the wheat will have to grow in Canada instead of Dakota, or the corn will have to grow in Dakota instead of Kansas or whatever it might be, Nebraska, Iowa. But climate collapse takes us to a whole nother sad place. Yeah, and I think that we have to be honest with ourselves about what is going on. I don't think that, you know, we can have we can motivate people to take individual actions and and people can take those steps and the, make those changes at home. But it's also really important for this to be a ripple effect in what we do. And so for people to have conversations and dialogues that spur larger actions, that spur, you know, conversations with policymakers, with stakeholders and getting people to understand that this is the reality. This is the new reality. We're never going to, you know, stop the, the things that, are set in motion entirely, and there are going to be lasting effects from the way that the climate has fundamentally changed or collapsed, whatever term you want to use. I kind of use them interchangeably, but I think that, you know, this is just the reality of the matter, a wildfire regime that has exceeded anything like we've ever known, especially in places like California, where there's no real, there's not really a fire season anymore. It's kind of a year round phenomenon. And um, my family's from California originally, and my mom, even my mom talks about being a kid and having fire season for a few months where you had your important things packed up in case you had to evacuate. And now it's a, it's all year long. They were, my family was in, in um, California for Thanksgiving and, and my mom and I watched the news as wildfires broke out in Orange County in late November and continued. Um, Yeah. So I think that it's really important to, understand the severity of the situation and to talk about it. I think that a lack of communication or a fear of having these really uncomfortable conversations can um, make us all feel a lot more isolated. Alice Julian, I know we have to let you go. Your essay is Of Hawks and Hope. It's a great read. High Country News, people can uh, Google that and find it and have a read. And the next piece you write, Alice, come back and talk to us again. Okay, thank you. Thank you for taking time. Good luck out in the field and best wishes to all the baby hawks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, Earth Month, and it is here upon us now. We'll be talking uh, with some folks who are radically upcycling, and we'll learn how to actually stop throwing all of our stuff away. We keep filling up the landfill. Uh, and we could actually do much better. So we'll be talking about that in just a bit, but first let's play a song. And Nick Burns, I was sitting here thinking as you were talking, uh, it'd be nice to play a song about birds. What about Blackbird? Oh, I like that. That would be a great choice. This is Blackbird right here on KRCL 90.9 FM, The Beatles. Hi, this is Jen Lopez with Clever Octopus Creative Reuse Center. Earth Day is April 22nd. Did you know that discarded clothing, including denim, takes up nearly 5% of all landfill space? Here are three quick picks to creatively reuse your jeans and other clothing. Pick number one, stitch a cube from scraps and stuff it with your discarded clothing to make an ottoman. What does that look like? Check it out from upcycle artist Blue Stegosaurus in the reuse market at Clever Octopus. Pick number two, braid a durable rug with fabric and denim scraps. Pick number three, create a patchwork picnic blanket of multicolored denim for the spring. I'm Jen Lopez with Clever Octopus Creative Reuse Center, and this has been Three Quick Picks in celebration of Earth Day, which is April 22nd. Find more ideas at cleveroctopus.org. Now, 
What are you going to do to help Mother Earth? You're listening to Radioactive right here on KRCL 90.9 FM. Coming up later tonight, Democracy Now! at 7 o'clock with Amy Goodman. Emily's Mixtape at 8 o'clock. And then you have Maximum Distortion at 10.30, bringing you the heavy metal. Rude Awakenings, 3 a.m. in the morning. And then a brand new day starts up our mornings here Monday through Friday with John Florence. Nick Burns, I'm excited about this conversation in the break there, you heard from one of our guests, Jen Lopez from Clever Octopus. And throughout the month, which is Earth Month, uh, she'll be bringing us three quick picks. Nick Burns. So, Jen Lopez, welcome to Radioactive. Hey, Nick. So thanks for doing this. And, and also mm-hmm. with us here for this conversation, Chance Thompson. He's the founder of Viridescent, and he's also on the board at Utah Recycling Alliance. Chance, thanks for joining us. And Amy Royer, you are a longtime adjunct faculty member at Salt Lake Community College in the Fashion Institute, and you get the kudos for creating the Sustainable Fashion course. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And and I guess the way to get into this is, you know, we all see the little triangle on all the little objects that we hopefully buy, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. And I think it's been a lot of really clever marketing to make us think we can just recycle everything. We just toss it in a bin and some magical truck will come and pick it up with an arm and it'll somehow get deposited in some wonderful place and get remade into another plastic bottle. And I think a lot of us are cynical enough to realize that's kind of a load of crap. But also one of those R's is reuse. And that's what I wanna talk about tonight on the show And that is this notion of upcycling, that we don't have to recycle everything. We can reuse things. And Jen, I guess I would start with you. Clever Octopus, the Reuse Center, it is an amazing operation, what you do. And for people who don't know, tell me about this reuse component in Clever Octopus. So we gather donated materials from around town, from around the community, from individuals and from businesses things that would either languish in your closet for the next couple decades and you'd forget about them and forget to use them, or things that are industrial and manufacturing offcuts, scraps and bits and bobs and little pieces that aren't applicable to what the business does, but are still totally viable for creative inspiration. And then you offer workshops where people could either themselves or families or kids can figure out how to do creative things with these, I'll call them cast-offs. Yep, we have lots of programs. Um, we've got a big series of things coming up this this month, especially in honor of Earth Day um, or in Earth Month. Um, styrofoam printmaking, which is kind of okay. cool. Styrofoam is pretty evil, um, hard to recycle, and um, yet it can be used for making prints uh, because it can take impressions so neatly. Found object printmaking, found objects being just any sort of treasure that has an interesting relief pattern to it. Uh, textile waste series that we've got coming up as well, involving modifying your clothes for legitimate human use, constructing a useful bag, and reconsidering that everything, even if it's not considered traditionally a textile, is a material. Legitimate human use. I love that. (laughs) So I wonder, you take donations and whatnot at Clever Octopus. Do you have a lot of problems with people just bringing you their junk and then they sort of want you to deal with it? Is that a problem? We try really hard to make sure that folks don't bring us junk because we're all happier. We're happier as an organization 
to make sure that we're getting the things that we want and you're happier as the donor to make sure that you're giving us things that we want. So we have a list on our website and that's cleveroctopus.org. Um, helping you figure out what sort of materials we take generally and what sort of materials we're limited on currently. So sometimes we overfill on something uh, uh, and we say, hang on to those for just a minute until we can move through some of the treasure that we've got right now. Okay. Uh, just curious, because I think that's tempting for people is you put a nice reusable object on top and you load all your crap underneath and drop the box off. At least I have seen people try to get away with that. So Amy Royer, let's, let's bring you in. Uh, you teach this sustainable fashion class at the Fashion Institute at Salt Lake Community College. The Fashion Institute brings students from really all over the country to learn fashion design, fashion merchandising, sewing, embellishments, hat making, shoe making, and so on. But tell me about what you do in this sustainable fashion class, which I think is kind of fantastic. Yeah, the Fashion Institute is an incredible place um, of creativity and I, as you mentioned earlier, kind of became a little bit more cynical of the fashion industry kind of early on uh, in my teaching. And I said, I kind of questioned whether or not I wanted to <laughs> create more catalysts <laughs> to <laughs> industry. So more cotton, yeah. I, I, I wondered um, if this is something I really wanted to pursue. And then I talked to the program director and said, I, I really want to um, focus on sustainability and how the evils of fashion industry, but more importantly, how we can fix it. And um, so that was something that she let me just kind of take off with and develop the whole, uh, the class and the curriculum. And it's, it's been, it's been wonderful. I've really, really loved it. Well, and I, I noticed that spring semester, the class is full. So clearly you've got student interest. So at, at the risk of putting you way on the spot here, Tell me about the class and what is it that you want students to take away? I mean, what skills do they leave with that they can help the world with? Well, as I mentioned before, it's it's not just doom. It's <laughs> doom and gloom. It's more uh -huh. focusing on, on what we can do uh, and, and how we can put a positive spin on it. Uh, not just what we're fighting against, but really focusing on what we're fighting for and taking the positive aspects of creativity and once again, Jen said, creating useful items um, and useful items out of things that were maybe once useful, but not anymore. Um, so uh, I, I asked that all of my students join an organization of their choice at the beginning of the semester. And that's something that they have to follow through the entirety of the semester. Um, they, it can be a local, um, international, national organization that they have to um, somehow volunteer with. Um, and it has to tie in with this idea of what I call um, craftivism. And craftivism is really a form of activism through crafting. I'm somewhat of an introvert. I, I love teaching, but sometimes it's hard for me, you know, to get out and be part of the community with, you know, picket signs and protesting and that type of thing. So I feel as though um, craftivism gives um, introverts an opportunity to create and um, share their love of earth and creativity without necessarily shouting, <laughs> oh. shouting at people. <laughs> you don't have to, you, you can put a patch on your jeans instead of throwing a bomb. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think that's totally cool. And I know that, I know that over the last year, 18 months, a couple of years, been, there's been a lot more public interest in fashion like H&M, 
which is, you know, low cost, high, uh, mimicking high fashion, but low cost and fairly disposable, right? Things don't last. And the idea is you will just throw it away and buy something new in a year. So kudos to what you and your students are doing. And Chance, I want to bring you in here. Chance Thompson, you're on the board at Utah Recycling Alliance and also the founder of Viridescent. And I love that name. So tell me what you do at Viridescent. Yeah, thank you, Nick. So Viridescent is a creative resource platform, and we are building what we call immersive sustainability, and, and we call it the Viraverse, which <laughs> is using circularity, art, and science to inspire and support sustainability champions kind of all over the world with the various things that they're doing. And we're, we're kind of a storytelling platform. We also sometimes refer to ourselves as a platform of purpose to help, you know, sustainability champions kind of elevate their their reach, their impact. And we're also trying to help people monetize sustainability too, because that is really the only way we're going to move the needle to where it needs to go to build a more sustainable kind of system. Yeah. Good so that is iridescent. So you raise a good point that I think a lot of people, perhaps people on the more radical fringe don't think of, and that is we're going to have the most success moving the needle, if you will, if we, if we work within and I hate to say this, but I will, if we work within the capitalist system, right? If, if... Yes and, and no. I think when it comes to sustainability, which upcycling is just one of the many things that fall into this idea of sustainability, but sustainability to me, one of the weaknesses of it is it's always felt more like an aspiration. We right. need like systems that are designed in a way that foster more sustainable, you know, human experience really. Uh, so this idea of circularity or circular economics is the thing that, that we're kind of leaning into heavily. And so when you look at things like what Amy and Jen are doing in the upcycling space, it's allowing us to build economic kind of and community. Uh, there's actually, I just did a blog on the, the Utah Recycling Alliance website talking about circular communities. And the idea is that rather than operating kind of in this linear sort of capitalistic system like we do, where it's just climbing the mountain towards infinite growth, no. that we are trying to close loops that, that are open. So, you know, something like what Clever Octopus does provides that that kind of community resource to an individual looking for a, a new home for something, right? There is also some cool things that CO and Amy has done this as well. Uh, in my previous role with the Salt Palace Convention Center, taking leftover trade show materials, and instead of it going to the landfill, right, it goes into these community organizations and those community organizations turn it into something more valuable than what it once was. And so you want to talk about kind of capitalistic, right? You're taking wasted, broken materials, you know, raw materials and turning them into something that are far more value, uh, more, you know, not just from money, but also personal, you know, investment and value there too. I'm kind of wondering. Well, no, that's a really good point. I, I agree. I totally agree that a circular economy is going to serve the world way better than, like you say, this notion of how much did we grow last year when we know that resources are finite. But still, by reusing something and increasing the value of it, we give people work, we give people jobs, we give people maybe a new chest of drawers because they've nailed the, the, the back together and repainted it or whatever it might be. Um, Jen Lopez, Creative Octopus, are there other creative octopi around the country or is what you're doing unique? So we are inspired, Clever Octopus is inspired by uh, Scrap Exchange in Durham, North Carolina, and they've been at it for almost 30 years now. And they wow. were inspired by Reverse Garbage in Australia, who has been at this for 
I think almost 60 years now. So along the way, there've been a lot of other organizations popping up here and there. Um, most states at this point have one or more in their state. And um, it's been really cool to see the idea spread through um, through the excitement of Scrap, uh, which is the kind of the West Coast version of things, and Scrap Exchange, which is the North Carolina one. Reverse you, garbage. What a name for a business. Jen, in the, for a nonprofit. I just love it. Oh, Jen, Amy Royer, is anyone else around the country? Do you know if any other institutions, any other fashion programs are teaching sustainability courses within the fashion design world? I think it's becoming more and more of a necessity. Um, in fact, students are now required to take my class as if they are want to continue. Oh, cool. Right on. That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> But if people went to fashion design in New York, let's say, would would they have a class like this? Do you know? Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's encouraging. New York City even has a specific uh, fabric scrap shop like ours, but it's just for upscale fabrics from designers. Uh, it's called Fab Scrap, and it's a place that most design students in the area will end up having to go shopping for their their supplies for what they're making for their class. Oh, totally wow. cool. Huh. Fantastic. So for folks who are interested in this kind of work, Jen, how did you come to it? How did you come to decide Salt Lake City needs a clever octopus? I got here after, um, after living in Durham, North Carolina for a while and having the magic of scrap exchange with me. I went to Southern California for a couple of years and I was working on setting up a um, restore, which is the, the house version of this uh, for Habitat for Humanity. And I got to Salt Lake and I thought, man, where do I get stuff like parts and pieces and bits and bobs and, you know, the things that you have laying around in your junk drawer. And we didn't have anything like that. And so it took a while, but I found my humans. I found Sherry Gibb and um, we got real excited about making this thing come to fruition. And here we are. And did I understand in your website that you can like host a kid's party? So kids could be you know, up, up, upcycling stuff for their birthday. Once we're out of COVID, we would love to have your kids on site. We've got two beautiful classrooms that opened up uh, a minute before we shut everything down yeah. for COVID. So for right now, we would love for you to come in and go shopping and fill a couple of fill bags and uh, get the supplies that you need to lead your kid party. But um, we're not, we're not hosting kid parties on site just yet. Okay, good point. We've still got COVID pandemic. So yes, we need to think past that. And speaking of bags, that's one of the things I also saw on your website that in all honesty, I have a sewing machine and I never thought about it. I could be sewing my own reusable, well, again, we're in COVID now, but reusable shopping bags. I mean, we could make our own out of old clothes, out of an old shirt. That's something that never crossed my mind. You can absolutely sew your own bags out of scrap materials and found materials and so forth. And we've got a couple of projects coming up, including one of the classes that's about taking all sorts of leftover parts and pieces, you know, take the bottom from your old tent and the uh, sleeve from your favorite sweatshirt that is falling apart and learn how to reassemble those fabrics and see them all as materials. It's going to be really fun. We're so oh, cool. And Amy, you know, they, if, if people go online and they see photographs, like click here to see famous photographs from the 1960s, and you see lots of people wearing clothes that involved a lot of patchwork, and people were incredibly creative about patching jeans and taking one color and patching it on top of another. And it was almost 
Well, I would say it really was a fashion statement, and it almost seems like what you're doing with students now is in a way a return to that, right? That things can be rebuilt, re-sewn, reworn, and they can now be high fashion and trend setting. It isn't just, you know, something you wear in your garage on a Saturday. Definitely. I feel like, um, I mean, maybe I'm just with like people, but I feel like uh, fashion is cyclical and we are coming around on that. I've seen a lot of um, designers being, using patchwork in, in their clothing, in their shirts and jeans. And, uh, and I mean, these are higher end designers. It's not just students who are patching things together. I feel <laughs> like it's beginning it seems to be to a me, real trend. No, good. I'm glad. But it seems to me also, and we've talked about this on Radioactive in the past, that, that with climate collapse, you know, cotton doesn't grow as well as it used to. It has to be at a different altitude and in a different place and with more chemicals and more pesticides. And even then the, the cotton fibers aren't as long as they used to be. So even the cloth that we often work with the, aren't as long lasting as they used to be, which leads to even more potential for waste and potential for reuse. Correct. I, I feel like a lot of my students now um, along with a lot of the rest of the community are, are thrifting because they're going back toward uh, the more retro styles. I mean, it's weird to say that things from the 90s <laughs> are, are oh, please. <laughs> but, um, but a lot of people are looking for, thing, for things from um, 70s, 80s, 90s, because they're just a higher quality. Uh, it's much better than the stuff that you can get at all these fast fashion places today. So um, thrifting is, is, a, is a great way to find higher quality garments. <laughs> Well, as long as it's not double knit, right? Because isn't double knit just something that'll be in the landfill till the next century? <laughs> well, hey, if you're wearing, if you're sporting that double knit polyester, then then go for it. But <laughs> personally, I'm, I'm one to be a little bit of a fabric snob and favor the uh, natural fibers like silk, uh, cotton, wool. I, 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 as long as those, those are typically going to be a little bit higher quality and last longer. And perhaps less resources to create them than polyester or um, what is it, modal made from bamboo? Modal and rayon, yeah, yeah, they yeah. those are um, you know they're comfortable, they breathe well, they drape beautifully. I, I totally see the allure, but the problem is, is those come from trees. <laughs> they come from wood pulp, and um, they clear cut millions of acres of trees just to create rayon and uh, keep the rayon industry going. So there's much better options out there. And I'm glad you're teaching that. Thank you, me too. It's a, it's a wonderful class and I'm glad that my students have been, uh, that they really receive it well. Oh, good, good, good. We've got Amy Royer here, Salt Lake Community College Sustainable Fashion. You're listening to Radioactive. Jen Lopez from Clever Octopus, Creative Reuse Center, co-founder and program director, and also Chance Thompson, founder of Viridescent and also with the Utah Recycling Alliance. We are going to talk uh, about our Earth Day initiatives here, what people can do to help um, to reduce our landfill. Uh, and I'm sure our panel will have some great advice there. But let's get into another song. And Nick Burns, since we like to play uh, the same artist on our show, we played the Beatles. So what's the song you want to hear? I think based on what we're talking about tonight, we ought to play Come Together. There you go. Come Together right here on KRTL 90.9 FM. 
Thanks for listening to Radioactive right here on KRCL 90.9 FM. We've been talking with uh, some radical upcyclers here on the show. Amy Royer, Salt Lake Community College Sustainable Fashion. Jen Lopez, who's from a Clever Octopus Creative Reuse Center. Uh, she is the co-founder there and the program director. Chance Thompson uh, does something close to what Clever Octopus does, but does it in a nonprofit, um, excuse me, for-profit way. And the Utah Recycling Alliance, he's on the board there, I believe. So Chance, uh, we haven't heard, for, got to hear from you a, a, a lot just yet, but uh, Utah Recycling Alliance, I know that this is the type, this is the month for sure that uh, the Utah Recycling Alliance really likes to focus on uh, getting the knowledge out there for the public. What is, what, what does uh, Utah, where does Utah Re Recycling Alliance fit in with all of the work that all of you are doing? Yeah, so, you know, while the organization is called the, the Recycling Alliance, right, it, it really is is pushing more into zero waste, right? It, it's best to not even have to recycle, right? Take things and turn them into something that are still useful, right? Re recycling is, is very resource intensive, no matter how efficiently you do it, whether it be plastics or aluminum or you know, anything else that, that we try to recycle. So, you know, I think that the, the work that the URA is doing is trying to lean into kind of that reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, hierarchy, right? So the pandemic has certainly had some impacts on the in-person events, but we're excited that, you know, things are starting to, to get closer to, to kind of going again. So the URA does a lot of really awesome things. One of our, at least my personal favorite is the, what we call our fix-it clinics. So we host often at uh, venues like the Leonardo and other community places, venues and things like that. We bring together experts like Amy and Jen to come and help people fix, adjust, you know, repurpose, upcycle their materials into something that's useful. But really, usually the idea is to fix things. So one of the coolest ones was this. It was like a like a half kind of dome, um, really rustic, like antique that had fallen and cracked right down the middle and through some clamps and creative <laughs> stuff, we were able to put it back together for the owner. It was this old like family heirloom thing, but there's also soldering and, and things like that to, to fix old broken electronics and things like that. So fix it clinics are great. We also do our charm events, which are collection and hard to recycle materials. And those are like pop up in a, in a big parking lot. People can bring all their weird stuff, you know, old bikes and car seats and plastic bags and things like that. And we'll work to find them a better home, either to get them recycled or reuse or repurposed in some sort of way. Yeah. When you're when your toaster breaks down, I think it's just our culture anymore to just take it straight to uh, the trash and just go to Costco and grab another one. But it, we used to be a society that. When you bought something, you expected for it to be yours for the rest of your life, but that's just not the case anymore, right? So it's kind of along that idea of, of uh, you know, stopping to look at what you got and say, okay, I don't need to throw this away. I got to figure out how not to throw this away. And that's really just all you're asking for people to do? Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the URA is a good resource to, to say, hey, I've got this thing, it's busted, it's broken, or, you know, it's it's kind of run its course, what can I do with it, right? So you can reach out to the URA. The best way to reach us is just message or comment us on Facebook at uh, URA Zero Waste. That'll be a good way to, to get a kind of a resource. We can always recommend something, um, you know, whether it be Amy or, or Jen or something else entirely. We've always got resources for you, for sure. I mean, it, Billy, like you're saying, it's totally crazy. I had a waffle iron way back that like dated to the 1940s and when it stopped heating this is many years ago now when it stopped heating on one one half 
I could just go buy some nichrome wire and rewire underneath the griddle because it all came apart and you could put it back together. And then I had a perfectly good cast iron waffle maker again. Um, and again, who that, that doesn't really exist anymore. Even if you didn't know how to do it yourself and you wanted to hire somebody to do it, where would you go find a repair shop that would take in a waffle maker and yeah. restring it for you? So I don't know if chance that's a kind of thing that's available anymore or if we if the best we can do is just well i won't throw the toaster or the waffle maker in the in the garbage i'll take it to recycle it just seems like we are so disposable and people are so habituated to disposal it's hard to conceptualize sometimes reuse it it's interesting because we you know i mentioned linear economy earlier right which is taking uh -huh. making and wasting things are made i think in a lot of ways we talked about with the fashion piece right fast fashion and stuff things are just made as cheaply and quickly as they can to get them sold and then they go out there but i i, I it's something i don't really understand so one of the uh, companies that i have a great deal of respect for from a sustainability strategy is something like patagonia Right. They offer their their, you know, garment repair program and things like that. And I, I've always wondered, well, why would you want to give your customers that easy out to just say, well, I'll just throw that away and I'll go buy something new. I mean, they probably will buy something else, another brand, another product or something. Right. That might not even be yours anymore. Whereas if you have this kind of continued relationship with your customer, you can continue to have them either, you know, use the same products or buy new things. And, you know, Patagonia is one of the most successful companies in the world, right? So there is a you know, kind of a more circular approach to, to doing these things. But as far as does, you know, does it exist to find these resources? I think people often would be really surprised at what is available in their community. And of course we have the power of Google, but I would encourage everybody in the you know the upcycling and repurposing community to continue to think about this as a business opportunity because where there's business opportunity there's innovation where there's innovation there's money and certainly the customer wins when there's innovation right so you know go googling and and look for various resources because there is always a fix it professional out there somewhere okay. and if not then find a place to dispose of it the right way you know through a recycling resource of some sort my kids took a class once where the there was a science class and there one of the things they had to do was bring in an old no longer operating like a VHS machine or something and they eventually got recycled and there wasn't really an easy way and nobody really wanted to fix a VHS machine but the kids got to take it apart to at least learn what went on inside and I thought that was kind of interesting but I want to ask about Patagonia you know, to buy a Patagonia coat, you've got to be a little bit more uh, flush to begin with. Sure. So it seems like we are, we're well set up for those who are more economically stable to be involved in this market, perhaps, than someone who needs a coat and can't afford Patagonia. And, you know, not to put a brand name on it, but they're at Old Navy or whatever. Um, sure. Thoughts about that? Yeah, actually. So, you know, that's one of the things that encourages like everybody buy used, right? Because chances are you will find a Patagonia garment somewhere, right? So that's an example. But there's there are others that do. I think L.L. Bean does things like this, too, with their uh, fixing stuff. So, you know, uh, what I, you know, you can buy used and then, you know, but there are also like, like in Salt Lake, there's uh, is it Kirkland, the outdoor outfitter, you know, they do fix it stuff, too, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be some fancy brand either, right? It might just be replacing a or on, on any, you know, random kind of non-branded sort of jacket. So I think when, you know, when you look at like Patagonia as like, yes, as a business model and as a, as a new price point, that can be expensive, but 
it's a model that I think other companies can follow suit, right? And I think a lot of uh, Kirkham, yeah, Kirkham. Um, thank you, Jen. Yeah, so, you know, look to buy used because, you know, that's where some affordability is. And it's always nice to have something that has some history and story to it, a little blobby-tobby kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, so those are my thoughts there. No, very good. And that's a really good point. You could buy a used coat that's probably better made than a new one anyway, if you're a creative shopper. So, Billy, how should we think about wrapping this up? We've talked about so many amazing things that people can do, whether they want to have a craft class with Jen at Clever Octopus. Um, I would encourage everyone to become a community college student, but you know I've got a bias there, and go take Amy's class. And again, Chance is offering us all kinds of opportunities to not just throw stuff away. Uh, but how do you think we ought to wrap this up and get people engaged? So before we get out of here, uh, you know, it's Earth Month. There's plenty of events. Have we covered all the events that are going to be happening this month? And if not, let's let's talk about those. What can people do this month to get themselves educated a little more so we can just do a little bit better this year than we did last? So, Jen, I'll, Jen, I'll throw that I'll throw Billy's question to you first. I know you have opportunities for folks to volunteer at Clever Octopus, but take us through some of the other opportunities. We've got the classes that we've talked about so far, we've got a Earth Month Challenge. Details are on our Instagram and our website and our Facebook, where you can find out how simple initiatives like bringing back tags from our shop will get you uh, a discount. Um, bringing back reused grocery bags will get you more. Um, and a couple more projects beyond that that'll help you uh, even even further enjoy the wonder that is the Clever Octopus this month. Um, <laughs> And along with that, we've got a grab bag contest where you pay five bucks for a mystery bag of treasures and create the coolest thing that you can come up with for that. And we'll have prizes awarded towards the end of the month. Um, again, details about that are on our Instagram at Clever Octopus. The big one that I can tell you about that kind of relates to what Chance had just been filling us in on is we've got a book club going. And the first book that we've chosen for our book club is Cradle to Cradle. It's a book that is about design. It's about remaking the way we make things. The book itself is a thing that is made in a different way than normal books because the material that the book is made out of can be 100% recycled into the same level of material to create more books of the same quality. And as a side benefit, it happens to be waterproof. So you can read all ah. about reuse while sitting in the tubby or, you know, soaking in your kiddie pool. Oh. Um, and we've got used copies available at Ken Sanders. So you should definitely join us for this book club. Pick up the book, read it, uh, read a little bit of it, even if you feel like it, and join us. Uh, we'll be meeting on April 24th, outdoors, safely in person, and also streaming the conversation live so that folks can join in however fits best for them. And details are, again, all on the website and all on social media. We'll so make sure to... Octopus.org. Jen Lopez, thank you. I'm surprised nobody ever thought of this before, or at least not here in Utah, but thank you for bringing this to us. We'll also put that, sorry, we'll also put that in our show notes as well. Clan, uh, Chance Thompson, how can people uh, tap into Very Distant, uh, which is what, about four months old now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you can follow us on Instagram as kind of our primary location right now at viridescent underscore US. So that's a good way to find us. We will actually be doing uh, during Earth Week on April 19th at 3 p.m. a Instagram live with Clever Octopus at Clever Octopus on Instagram. So we'll be talking about upcycling there. 
And then the other thing I'll, I'll mention too is an opportunity for everyone uh, is the Utah Recycling Alliance right now is doing a crowdsourced zero waste film. And so we are asking people to submit different things that they're doing zero waste in their life. Uh, and so, and I'm actually hoping to, uh, in my submission will be zero waste tips from the back country out in the desert. <laughs> it was very cold. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, plug into uh, utahrecyclingalliance.org for that, and we would love people to submit videos, and we are going to put that into a, a kind of a feature film towards the end of the year. So those are some of the ways that we'll have, or some of the things we'll have coming up on, on Earth Day and Earth Week. Amy Royer, Salt Lake Community College Sustainable Fashion. How can people go, can people just go and check take, take your class? Uh, yes, uh, but still have to register through Salt Lake Community College to, to take the class. I honestly would love to just say, just come. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, right. I would love to begin to just teach a class for free. Um, I, it's knowledge that everyone should have. And, um, and I just wish that it was, uh, you know, easy ac access to everyone. Um, but for right now, uh, I just, on, I just have a Facebook page, SLC um, sustainable fashion, SLC sustainable fashion, where I post, uh, videos every week of upcycle projects and, uh, you can check stuff out there. If you're one of those people, the number one question I get asked is where do I take my scraps of fabric? Um, you know, Jen sells wonderful fabric at Clever Octopus, but they prefer, uh, larger pieces typically. And so my job is to deal with all those little tiny scraps of fabric. So bring those to me and I upcycle those types of things. So, Love it. Thank you all so much for coming here and doing what you do. And Chance, as far as the videos, can I, I just got a, an e-bike and I committed to a year, at least a year's worth of using my e-bike instead of my car. Can I, can I take a video of that and call that no uh, zero waste? Yes. I think one of the weaknesses of the sustainability thing is we sometimes want to get too focused in our one little space. It, it's kind of a lot of stuff, right? And, you know, if you think about zero waste, zero carbon, same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So love that. Cool. Well, thank you all for coming. Nick Burns. So I just want to mention if folks are interested in Amy's class at the college, people who are over age 62 are able to audit community college classes uh, for basically 10 bucks. So if folks want to check that out. If you are if you are of a certain age, uh, Salt Lake Community College has a fantastic deal, and that applies to any class you might want to audit at the college. But by all means, you can check out Amy Royer's sustainable fashion class. Pretty cool stuff. That's going to be our show. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio. Laura Jones is executive producer. I'm Billy Palmer. I'm associate producer. Nick Burns is our Wednesday night community co-host. And next week, we'll be back with you. It'll be Radiothon. So take your time, but do get to a computer or call us on the phone uh, next week. And we'll be answering the lines to take your donations. That's how we are able to do shows like this is because of community support. Talk about sustainable, right? It's sustainable community radio, krcl.org. Beat the rush. Make your pledge now. It's as simple as that, Billy. That's right. Thank you for listening. Democracy Now! is next. Ruby! Ruby!